Merry Christmas, beloved. Merry Christmas, huh? Let's pray. Our Father, we come now to this time in our public worship when we open the Word of God together and to hear from you what you would have for us in this day. We pray, Father, for your Holy Spirit to be our teacher this morning, to help us to be good listeners, to help us to apply the truth. I pray, Father, for your Spirit's enablement to make clear the truth, that you would draw us closer to the Savior whose birth we celebrate this Christmas season. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. Beloved, the Bible is, the New Testament is put together basically in two parts. The first five books are narrative books. They tell a story, four Gospels and the book of Acts, the story of the first 30 years of birth and progress of the church in its first 30 years. And with the exception of the book of Revelation, which is in a category it's all its own, the rest of the New Testament is primarily a theological reflection upon the narrative that was given in those first five chapters. And I tell you that because normally when we come to a Christmas service, uh, we tend to focus on the Christmas story. We tend to, to spend our time in the narrative itself, and that's wonderful. It's 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 tremendous place to be, and there's, there's so much truth there to, to enrich us and fill our hearts and remind us of the, of the gift of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. But this morning, rather than do that, because in our singing we have done that, we have glorified God for the gift of his Son, instead what I want to do with you this morning is to sort of emulate, if, it, if you will, the, the, the letter portion of the New Testament, and that is to, to take some time to have some theological reflection upon the most amazing story of the birth of the Savior. So this morning's Christmas message is theological, and it is designed to be reflective for us, okay? So just kind of telling you that. I've got a theological message for you this morning. Now, in the first century, the, uh, the Greek, uh, Greek philosopher, that's easy for you to say, the Greek philosopher Plutarch uh, posed a, a really interesting question, and it was a question with regard to what's called causality in the field of philosophy, and the idea of, of cause and effect, and, and how are cause and effect related, and so forth. And he posed this famous question, which I'm sure you all know. And he did it by observing chickens. And what he observed is that all chickens hatch from eggs, and all chicken eggs are laid by chickens. And so he, he posed a very famous philosophical question, right? And you know what it is. Which came first, the chicken or the egg? Now that has... That has um, bound up the thinking of secular philosophers since the first century, but for a Bible-believing Christian, this is not really that difficult a philosophical question, is it? We know the answer of which came first, the chicken or the egg, and the obvious answer is the chicken, because God created the chickens as mature beings as he created a mature creation in those early days, right? So we know the answer to the question, which came first, the chicken, obviously. And it was the chicken that then lays eggs. So we can set that philosophical question aside pretty readily. Let me ask you another one, though. Here's another philosophical question, I suppose, for, for Bible believers, and it goes like this. Did Adam have a belly button? Did Adam have a belly button? Well, like the chicken and the egg question, the answer is no. No, he did not have a belly button because a belly button is a result, right, of the umbilical cord attachment from the mother. And Adam is a special creation of God from the dust of the earth, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. So the answer is, did Adam have a belly button? No. I've got a third question for you. 
And this question is far more <laughs> profound than chickens or Adam's belly button. And this is my question for you. Did Christ have a belly button? Did Christ have a belly button? And the answer to that question is huge, absolutely huge. The answer obviously is yes, born of the Virgin Mary in the normal way. And, and the reason this is a huge question an imperative that Christ did have a belly button is because no belly button, no redemption. No belly button, no redemption. As sinners, we are guilty of violating God's law. And the law of God is an expression of his infinitely holy nature. Thus we incur against him a debt of infinite magnitude which we will never be able to repay. This is why hell is eternal. This is why hell is eternal. It's eternal because full Payment is never possible. And thus all those in hell remain forever guilty under bondage of sin, paying for a debt they can never repay, infinitely so. The only hope for humanity, the only hope for a finite being is that a substitute of infinite worth could be found who would be willing to take our place and pay our debt. Beyond that, because God is holy and no one can see him or be with him who is not holy like him, that substitute also must lend to us his infinite holiness and righteousness. The Bible tells us that the Father provided that substitute in the person of his own Son. That the second person of the triune God, fully God, took to himself in space and time full and undiminished humanity. And he did so that he might ransom his people from their sin, that he might be the substitute of infinite worth and perfect righteousness that is our only hope, our only hope. The angel of the Lord said to Joseph, recorded in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 21, Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sin. Beloved, as we reflect theologically this morning upon the reality of no belly button, no redemption, what I have for you is six reasons that Christ had to be fully human in every respect. Six reasons why Christ had to be fully human in every respect. And that is the Christmas message. That is the incarnation that God became man and dwelt among us. So... Are you ready? Someone's ready over there, and I'm glad to hear that. Number one, reason number one, the wages of sin is death. Reason number one, the wages of sin is death. Go with me back to Genesis. 
Back to Genesis chapter 2. Because what we find there is the, the brief account, the brief narrative of the sixth day of creation there where God placed Adam in the garden and he gave Adam both the responsibility over the garden and the permission to enjoy the fruit of his own labor from whatever he wanted save one tree, right? Genesis chapter 2, verse 15. Then the Lord God took the man and put him into the Garden of Eden to cultivate it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Well, we know the outcome of that, don't we? Adam disobeyed God, and he took, and he ate. And the consequences were exactly as God said. Death came to Adam. Death came to Adam. Then we see it immediately in the third chapter of Genesis, because death is separation. And we see in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 22 that, that the first death, the spiritual death, which is the separation from God, happens immediately as Adam and Eve are expelled from the presence of God and the close and intimate fellowship they had once enjoyed with God. Verse 22 of, verse, of chapter 3, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us knowing good and evil. And now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the garden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out. And at the east of the garden of Eden, he stationed the cherubim and the flaming sword which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Adam died. Adam died. He died spiritually in that moment when he took an ate. He died physically, if you move to the right to chapter 5, we see in chapter 5 and verse 5, so all the days of Adam lived were 930 years and he died. He died physically. He died spiritually, he died physically. In the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. But not just Adam died. Death passed from Adam to all of his descendants. And chapter 5 of Genesis makes this very, very clear. Eight times in chapter 5, the refrain is, and he died. Chapter 5 of Genesis is known as the graveyard of the Old Testament. Because as you read about these extended ages, the extended lifespans here prior to the flood, the refrain still comes at the end of each eight or nine hundred year lifespan, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. Paul in the New Testament, reflecting upon this tragic reality, says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 23, right, that the wages of sin is death. It is death. In the divine accounting, a debt had been incurred and the bill must be paid. And the bill must be paid. Now, since God is eternal, self-existent, and possesses life in himself, it is impossible for him to die. Therefore, in order for Christ to die in our place, right, that one of infinite worth to pay the infinite debt, he had to be fully human. And in order for his death to, to have the infinite worth necessary to atone for our sin, he had to be fully divine. 
The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy 3.16, in reflecting on this reality, he makes this statement. He says, great is the mystery of godliness. Great is the mystery of godliness. Fully God and fully man. The first reason that Christ had to be fully human is that the wages of sin is death. Second, second reason. Animal sacrifices are ineffective. Animal sacrifices are ineffective. Immediately following Adam's sin... God both instituted and required animal sacrifice. Animal sacrifice is God's idea, not man's. And we see it in chapter 3 of Genesis and verse 21. After man's feeble attempt to, to conceal themselves and cover their shamefulness, Verse 21 of Genesis chapter 3, we read that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And as my friend Doug Bookman so pointedly observed, animal skins don't come with zippers. He clothed them with the skin of animals necessitating their death. Their death. Beyond that, God requires animal sacrifice. Chapter 4 of Genesis. Now the man had relations with his wife Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to a son, and she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again she gave birth to to his brother Abel. And Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel on his part also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering, but for Cain and for his offering he had no regard. So Cain became very angry and his countenance fell. Why did God reject Cain's offering? First and foremost, because he had rejected Cain. But it goes behind that, and that is because Cain did not bring the offering that was required. It was a blood sacrifice that was required. It was an animal offering that was required, and Cain refused to bring it. We see over in chapter 8, chapter 8 of Genesis, that there following the flood, when God washed the earth clean of sin and its corruption, that Noah, after debar departing, debarking from the ark, offered animal sacrifice Verse 21, the Lord smelled the soothing aroma, and the Lord said to himself, I will never again curse the ground on account of man, for the intent of man's heart is evil from his youth, and I will never again destroy every living being as I have done. So you pick it up in verse 20, Noah built an, an altar to the Lord and, and took of every clean animal and every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar, and God smelled the soothing aroma. Animal sacrifice was instituted by God, required by God, codified in the law of Moses, if you'll go with me to Exodus chapter 12, with the institution of the Passover. It is the sacrifice of the Passover that sort of embodies the entire Mosaic sacrificial system. And here in Exodus chapter 12, and beginning in verse 1, Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year for you. In other words, you, we're starting everything new here. You get a brand new calendar. 
Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each one to take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Drop down to verse 7. Moreover, they shall take some of the blood of the lamb that they were to slay and put it on the two doorposts of the house and on the lentil of the door of the houses in which they eat it. Verses 13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you, and no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Now this day will, become, will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. You ought to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. God instituted, God required animal sacrifice. His idea, not man's. But, because animal sacrifice never truly satisfied the payment for sin, it didn't have an infinite worth, it thus didn't really remove the guilt of the sinner, and therefore it had to be offered over and over and over again. And that's exactly the point the writer to the Hebrews makes in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. Beginning in verse 1. For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never, by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, the fact that they had to offer the sacrifice over and over and over again, and that essentially the priests were butchers, taught the people that this did not really deal with their sin problem. For reasons unknown to us, God allowed humanity to defer payment of their sin by using the divine credit card of animal sacrifice. And I think that's a good way to think about it. He granted them the divine credit card called animal sacrifice. And like a credit card, the bill must still be paid eventually. But in the moment, the promise of future payment enables us to enjoy the immediate fruit of the purchase, right? You go into a store, you give them a credit card, you walk out with the merchandise in your hand, and you have paid nothing. But you have promised that a full payment is coming. A full payment is coming. And animal sacrifice is that divine credit card. In the fullness of time, Paul says, the Father sent his Son as the final sacrifice in order to pay the bill. John chapter 1, verse 29, right? John the Baptist says, Behold, pointing to Christ, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The fulfillment of the Passover lamb. All of those millions of lambs slaughtered over thousands of years. Paul reflects on this in Romans chapter 3. Romans 3, verses 25 and 26. And he says exactly this. Verse 25, And Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith, this was to demonstrate his righteousness, because in the forbearance of God he passed over the sins previously committed. For a demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time, so that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. How did God remain just, passing over the sin of people? 
for all that long period of time? How did he remain just in allowing people to put it onto the divine credit card for all those many years? When the bill came due, he gave his son, whose death made him the payment in full. Hebrews chapter 10. By the way, if you haven't figured this out, we're probably going to be in Hebrews a lot, so you may want to keep a thumb there or something. But Hebrews 10. Beginning in verse 11. Every priest stands daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. Boy, you think about a frustrating job, huh? It'd be like a perpetual motion machine, you know? You keep doing the same thing and it doesn't bring about the desired result. Anyway, just an observation which can never take away sins. Twelve. But he, having offered one sacrifice, that is Christ, having one, offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. As someone once observed, there were no chairs in the holy place because the priest never sat down. It was never done. Jesus offered the one sacrifice and he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time onward until his enemies be made a footstool for his feet. For by one offering he has perfected for all time those who are sanctified. For by one offering, excuse me, and the Holy Spirit also testifies to us, for after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws upon their heart and on their mind I will write them. He then says, and their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now, where there is forgiveness of these sins, there is no longer any offering for sin. In other words, when one is fully forgiven, there is no longer a need to offer a sacrifice. That's why we don't come with a lamb across our shoulders on Sunday morning. Animal sacrifices are ineffective. The second reason that Christ had to be fully human. Third, third reason. Guilt and righteousness are imputed. Guilt and righteousness are imputed. When the Lord God created the human race on the sixth day, he did so in a particular order and in a particular way. He created man, Adam, and he created him from the earth, from the dust of the earth, we're told in Genesis 2, verse 7, and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and Adam became a living being. Sometime later in the sixth day, God created the woman. And he created her from a rib drawn from the side of Adam. And that's hugely important. Why didn't God create Eve from the dust? Why did he create Eve from Adam? The reason he created the woman, Eve, from Adam is so that there would be a human race, there would be solidarity in the human race. In other words, the human race goes back, in, 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 if you follow the regressions backwards in time, it goes back to one person, one man. This, by the way, is why it is called a human race. How many races are there? There is one race. It is the human race. It is the human race. Now this, by the way, is in, in distinction from the angelic beings. Angels are not a race. They do not descend from one. God created all the angels that ever will be in one immediate act of creation. No additions, 
no subtractions. And they do not all come from one. What this means, beloved, is that you and I are descendants of Adam. We all descend from Adam. And because we all descend from Adam, we all share in the consequences of Adam's decision there in the garden. The good news in all of this is that because we are united in one man, we can also be redeemed by one man, the second Adam, who succeeded where the first Adam failed. Now you might think, well, that's not fair. Why should I be accountable for what Adam did? Here's the news. You don't get to make that decision. That's how God set it all up. That's how God created. And here's the good news that goes with it, because if God had not created this way, then you could not be redeemed in Christ. One Savior could not redeem all of the children of God. Beloved, God views the human race, the entire human race, in the mind of God, as united, or in is the kind of language the Bible uses, one of two men. They all start out in Adam. The redeemed are united in Christ. They are transferred from their union with Adam to a union with Christ. In other words, all of humanity lives as in Adam slaves of sin and death and destined for judgment at the end of the age. Or... They are living in union with Christ as free people destined for glory in the age to come. That's how the Bible tells us the world is put together. You are either in Adam this morning and headed for judgment and death eternally, where you will never finish paying for your sin, or you are in Christ and your sin has been paid for and you are destined for glory in the presence of God. That's it. Two paths. The actions of these two men determine our destiny. And that's what the word imputation means, by the way. Imputation means that there's a transfer of benefit or harm from one individual to another. That's what it means to be imputed. So when we say that guilt and righteousness are imputed, in other words, Adam's guilt is, is imputed or transferred to all of his descendants, for they all in some way participated in his sin. And the righteousness of Christ is imputed for all of his descendants. For they also in some way participated. They were with him in his death, burial, and resurrection. The Bible makes it clear. It gives us a, a, a structure of a threefold imputation. Adam's sin to us, Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. Paul's reflecting on these realities. Romans 5, beginning in verse 12. Paul says, therefore, just as through one man sin entered into the world, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. 
For until the law, sin was in the world, but sin is not imputed when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam until Moses, even over those who had not sinned in the likeness of the offense of Adam, who is a type of him who was to come. What Paul is saying here is that the, the very fact that and he died, and he died, and he died, demonstrates the reality that all of those men who died from the beginning died on account of Adam's sin, even though the law of God through Moses had not been given and would not be given for a long, long time to come. And thus they did not, they did not sin in the same likeness of Adam. In other words, they did not disobey a direct command of God, but because they were united in Adam, they participated in his, dis, in his rebellion and received his consequences. Paul says the same thing in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 21 and 22. For since by a man came death, by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Adam's sin is imputed to us. It is, it is transferred to us. Secondly, the Scripture teaches us that our sin is imputed to Christ, transferred to Christ. Now, how would Paul know, how would Paul know that, that, that God uh, would transfer our sin to the Messiah. And the way he would know that, among others, is by a, a simple reading and reflection upon Isaiah 53. Where in Isaiah 53, beginning in verse 4, the prophet writes of Jesus. Eight centuries before he comes. He says, surely our griefs he himself bore, and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. Each of us like sheep has gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Beloved, that is the language of imputation. Adam sinned to us. Our sin to Christ. And then the third leg of the imputation, Christ's righteousness to us. Remember we said at the beginning here, not just that we needed someone to pay the infinite debt, but we also needed the infinite holiness and righteousness necessary to live in the presence of God. And if our debt were merely paid, we would be restored to neutral. We've got to get way beyond neutral. So 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, one of my favorite verses in the Scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5.21, where Paul says, He, that is the Father, made him, that is Christ, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Imputation. How do we receive this imputation? What, what activates it for us? The answer to that question is found in Romans chapter 4 and verse 4. Romans 4 and verse 4. Now the one to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due, but to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. How is the imputation of the righteousness of Christ effectuated in, in space and time with you and I? It's when we, in, we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, when we exercise saving faith in his atoning sacrifice. Fourth reason, 
By the way, any one of these is more than enough to keep you occupied this Christmas season as you plumb the depths of it. We're just skimming the treetops. Reason number four, why Christ had to be fully human. Number four, Adam's fall had to be reversed. Adam's fall had to be reversed. Adam's fall resulted in the loss of humanity's exalted position and our bondage to sin and Satan. It brought about our bondage to sin and Satan. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, I won't turn there, but Paul speaks there about those who are in Adam, those before Christ who are who are prisoners of the kingdom of darkness. But Hebrews chapter 2 and verses 14 and 15, where the writer says, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. In Adam, we are slaves to sin, living under bondage to sin, subject to the realm of Satan. Beyond that, Adam's fall brought about a disruption of the natural order and ruination of of man's original dominion mandate. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 26 through 28, right, where he says, be fruitful and multiply and subdue the earth and rule over the creation. When Adam fell, he proved himself A failure at that task of stewardship, and it was thus damaged, ruined. And the creation itself, no longer under the wise stewardship of the representative of God, of which Adam was, now descends itself into the consequences of Adam's fall. Why is the world messed up? Why are there hurricanes that come and and kill people and forest fires? And and why is it that the ground is is, fighting it all the time and is never revealing its, its, its prosperity to us without tremendous effort? The answer is, is because the creation itself has been subjected to futility, Paul says in Romans chapter 8. Where he says in verse 20, For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, that is God, in hope that the creation itself also will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. The creation is messed up. And it needs to be set free. And it can only be set free by a second Adam. There has to be one who succeeds where Adam failed. And because the Son of God assumed human nature and bore our sorrows... He has been crowned with glory and honor, and the glory and honor originally promised to man. It's in Christ that redeemed humanity recovers the dominion which Adam lost. Hebrews chapter 5, or excuse me, chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2. And beginning in verse 5. For he, that is God, did not subject to angels the world to come, concerning which we are speaking. 
But one has testified somewhere, saying, and that's Psalm 8, What is man that you remember him? Or the son of man that you are concerned about him? You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he has left nothing that is not subject to him. In other words, that God created man to be rule over the creation, all of it, including the angelic realm. But now we do not yet see all these things subjected to him. In other words, that the creation doesn't reveal itself to being subject to you and I. In fact, it seems often that we're subject to it. Verse 9. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels. Who's the him? Namely, Jesus. Because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In other words, Christ recovers what Adam lost. Christ recovers what Adam lost. And in union with Christ, by faith, we then begin to recover. We recover fully in principle and and practically over time. We begin to recover all that Adam lost. This recovery will not be fully manifest in this age, but it will be on full display in the renewed creation in the age to come. 2 Timothy chapter 10. There is no chapter 10. Chapter 2. Just checking you. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 10. Paul says, for this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen, so that they also may obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus and with it eternal glory. For it is a trustworthy statement. For if we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. Revelation chapter 22. In the new heavens and the new earth. The end of verse 3. His bondservants will serve him, it says. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Drop down to the end of verse 5. And they will reign forever and ever. In the new creation, what Adam lost, Christ recovers, and it becomes ours, and it is fully manifest in the age to come. Fifth reason. Fifth reason. Christ had to be fully human because sin dominates every aspect of our humanity. Christ had to be fully human because sin dominates every aspect of our humanity. The effect of Adam's fall were not limited to the physical realm alone, but they encompass every aspect of his humanity and thus every aspect of all of those who have descended from him, material and immaterial. In other words, every aspect of our being has been deformed, defiled, broken by sin. Nothing has eluded it. We are bent and twisted in on ourselves by sin in our bodies, in our minds, and in our souls. The manifestation in our bodies is obvious, right? There is sickness, disease, deformity, and eventually death. It doesn't take a lot to convince someone That sin ravages the body, physically. Sin also ravages the mind. Our minds are broken by sin. We are morally blind, desiring and lusting after that which is offensive to God. 
We are intellectually unproductive, failing to think about the world around us rightly. We are broken in our souls, spiritually dead and separated from the life of God. There is not one aspect of our humanity that has not been defiled by sin. So in order for Christ to save us, he must share our full and complete humanity in every single way, yet without sin. Which, by the way, informs us that sin is not essential to humanity. The fact that we don't know a human who has not sinned because there is no human who has not sinned except Christ alone tells us that sin is not essential to humanity. But everything else, body, mind, and soul, Christ shared with us. Mark this down. For that which Christ did not share, he could not redeem. For that which Christ did not share, he could not redeem. If you're ever wondering, you know, did, how did, did Jesus experience emotions? If Christ did not share it, he could not redeem it. Yes, he experienced emotions. Let's review. Six reasons. First, the wages of sin is death. Second, animal sacrifices are ineffective. Third, guilt and righteousness are imputed. Fourth, Adam's fall had to be reversed. Fifth, sin dominates every aspect of our humanity. And sixth and finally, sixth and finally, we need a perfect priest. We need a perfect priest. The role of a priest is to represent the people before God and God to the people. The role of the priest is to represent the people before God and God to the people, to bring them, as it were, into the presence of God through the sacrificial system and to assure them of God's pardon. This is the role of the priest. Under the terms of the old covenant, the priesthood was lodged in one tribe, right? You You couldn't say, what do you want to be when you grow up? I want to be a priest. If you're not of the tribe of Levi, sorry. Not an option for you. So it was lodged in one tribe. And, and more importantly, one family of that tribe, the sons of Aaron. This was the priesthood. If your father was a priest, guess what you're going to be? You are going to be a priest. But the weakness of this system was that the priests themselves needed a mediator. They were supposed to be the mediator, and yet they needed a mediator. Right? Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews 5. This is why this system could never solve the problem. Hebrews 5, and beginning in verse 1. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself also is beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins. As for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes the honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself as to become a high priest, but he who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you, just as he says in another place, You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In other words, Christ wasn't self-appointed. God appointed him as the great high priest. Because the human priests, the human priests were defective in the fact that they themselves needed a priest. 
Beyond that reality that they needed to offer sacrifices, the ones giving the sacrifice needed to offer their own sacrifice, beyond that, their, their ministry was necessarily temporary because they were going to die. They were going to die. But Christ, by virtue of his resurrection, remains a priest forever. And thus he is able to forever, for eternity, act as our great high priest, right? Intervening before God on our behalf. To continually make intercession for his people. Chapter 7, verse 23. The former priests, on the one hand, existed in greater numbers because they were prevented by death from continuing. In other words, you've got to have a lot of priests. Why? Because they're dying all the time. But Jesus, on the other hand, because he continues forever, holds his priesthood permanently. Therefore, he is able also to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was fitting for us to have such a high priest, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners and exalted above the heavens, who does not need daily, like those high priests, to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people, because this he did once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men as high priests who were weak, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints a son made perfect forever. Therefore, the Apostle Paul can say with great confidence in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 5, there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. The man Christ Jesus. He is the perfect priest that we have to have. It's Christmas, beloved. It's Christmas. We often think about a, a baby in a manger, don't we? And that's good. That's good. But just remember this. That baby in the manger. No belly button. No redemption. No belly button. No redemption. May God help us this Christmas... Not to be caught up in the sentimentality of it all, but in the profound theological reality that God became man and dwelt among us so that he might save his people from their sins. Let's pray. Our Father, great is the mystery of godliness. That you would send forth your Son. That he would voluntarily go and, and humble himself. Lay aside the, the independent access and use of his divine nature and live as a man in humility and obscurity in full and complete dependence on the Spirit of God. This truth is, is so profound, so filled with mystery. We could not conceive it and we cannot fully understand it. But we do know the truth of it. The scriptures are replete with the declaration of it. And the implications are, are vast and varied. And, oh Lord, we've skimmed the trees on some of them this morning. In the hustle and the bustle, oh Lord, in the days before us, as we come to the day set aside to celebrate the incarnation, 
May you enable us to set aside a little time to think, to ponder the truth that God became man to seek and to save that which is lost. We give you all glory, all praise, in the name of the resurrected one, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen and amen. Well, beloved, I want to invite you back on Monday night. What's that? Tomorrow night. Come back tomorrow night at 6.30. It'll only be an hour-long service. So those of you with young children and you're kind of wondering what's that all going to mean, it'll be about, it'll be about an hour, no longer than that. Okay? We'll sing a little. We'll read scriptures. And I have a short message prepared. We'll take communion together. And uh, we'll just, it'll be a great way to prepare our hearts for the Christmas day. Okay? So God bless you. Go in peace. Merry Christmas.